Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This week's podcast is devoted to investment trusts and the different ways that investors of all ages and stages can use them in their portfolios. We'll be discussing how these trusts allow you to invest alongside the wealthiest families, the dividend heroes which offer the most consistent income and whether they are still a good option for investors. And Merrin Somerset-Webb tells us why she thinks investment trusts have a better chance of lasting a lifetime compared to other assets. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast about personal finance and investing. I'm Emma Ashman, reporter at FT Money. For generations, Britain's richest families have turned to closed-ended funds to preserve and grow their wealth. Witten Investment Trust was launched in 1909 to manage the estate of the first Lord Farrenden, Alexander Henderson. Another trust, Caledonian Investments, was acquired by the Kayser family in the 1950s as a holding company for their various shipping interests. And Ritz Capital Partners, another trust, is a vehicle for Rothschild's family wealth. All of these trusts and several others retain strong family links, and some advisors argue they work well for investors seeking a long-term strategy. I looked at the pros and cons of investing in these trusts for last week's cover feature, and to discuss this, I'm joined by Moira O'Neill, Head of Personal Finance at Interactive Investor, and Jason Hollins, Managing Director at Tilney Group. Hello to both of you. Hello. Hello. Jason, um, would you like to kick off by giving us a brief overview of some of these trusts? So how are the families still involved and what percentage of shares do they own? Sure. Well, perhaps the most well-known example would be RIT Capital Partners. That has a long association with uh, the Rothschild family, hence RIT, Rothschild Investment Trust. And actually, uh, until earlier this year, Lord Rothschild was chairman of the board. He's still on the board, but um, in a capacity as, as president. So he stepped back, if you like. Uh, from a more active involvement in the trust. The the, the Rothschild family, um, in a fairly direct way, own 21% of the trust, but other major shareholders are, are associated with the Rothschild family and, and ver- through various sort of foundations and uh, investment vehicles. So they're substantial owners in this trust. Uh, its strategies have evolved over the years, but uh, what it stands for today, it's very much uh, invest globally, but invest in markets both in a traditional long manner, buying shares in the businesses that uh, they think will do well, but also they delegate part of the portfolio out to absolute return and hedge fund managers, uh, as well as also investing in uh, some other alternative asset classes like uh, private equity funds. So it gives investors the chance to be in a trust that's running with a strategy that um, uh, is quite diversified and importantly delegates out 
pockets of the portfolio to leading fund managers from, selected from across the world. So in many ways, it's a chance that if you invest in it, to be gaining access indirectly to some investment teams and strategies that normally as a, an ordinary investor, you wouldn't be able to and would normally only be open to very wealthy individuals or institutional investors. Interesting. And as you say, the trust, um, the family owns about 20 they own about shares. 21%, mm-hmm. uh, but I say there, there are other f- foundations and organisations associated with the Rothschilds as well, are major shareholders, so, so substantial shareholders, that's okay. correct. Um, another one? Another example would be uh, Caledonia Investments. Now, this trust um, has uh, a sizable interest from the Kayser family, who together um, own around about 48% of the assets. It has a fairly unusual strategy in that it, it, it invests both across public markets, but also uh, unquoted companies uh, are fairly sizably. So around about 37% of the portfolio is in unquoted companies. So uh, again, a quite unusual mixture of investments. Uh, a big slice of that is in the UK, uh, but it also invests overseas. Um, and and the family are represented on the board of, of, of the trust. And then a third example, which is perhaps a little bit more Uh, conventional is the Brunner Investment Trust. Uh, The Brunner family have about a 29% interest in that trust, but it's actually managed on a day-to-day basis uh, by Allianz, um, uh, and it is a global equity portfolio. Okay, thank you, Jason. Um, And Moira, one of the main reasons that people like the sounds of these trusts is because, you know, the families have obviously put their money where their mouth is, as some of the examples Jason gave with how much they've got invested. So what kind of pounds and pence level are we talking do families have invested in these trusts? Yeah, well, it certainly plays well to the if you can't beat them, join them argument for those of us who don't quite have the same means. Um, And and having skin in the game uh, does send that clear and powerful message to um, both existing and potential investors. Um, There's been a a very fascinating report out from Investec which shone a spotlight on the level of personal investments held by board directors and the managers in the trusts that they oversee. Um, The largest um, investment by a manager was the Rothschild family, which Jason's already mentioned. Um, And the Rothschild's investment also topped the list of board members who had most um, skin in the game. But there were other family-founded trusts that also featured highly, and those included um, the um, Caledonia, um, which has three um, Kaiser family members on the board. And um, also um, Hansa Investment Company um, has some lots of family uh, shareholders as well. Uh, and it's, it's incredibly reassuring, I think, for investors to be investing alongside these wealthy families. Yeah. And I mean, I think for the Rothschilds one, it was something like £703 million they've got invested in, in the trust, um, with, with, with obviously quite a lot of millions in, in the other trusts as well. So um, definitely. Um, so Moira, what else do you think are the reasons why people might want to invest apart from that skin the game element that we're talking about? Well, they're clearly taking core types of investment strategies. Um, Typically, they either have a global growth approach or they have a um, a sort of flexible investment strategy that goes between different um, asset classes. And the fact that the portfolios are so highly diversified does often make them a one-stop shop for investors who do want access to a range of investments in one place. And of course, wealthy families are usually very appreciative of dividends, which we know can um, play a a fantastically powerful effect as they compound up over the years and if we reinvest them back into the trust. Mm 
Um, I think a trust that's a vehicle for family assets is also likely to emphasise careful investment management, which may appeal to the more cautious investor. But uh, the flip side of that, of course, is that if there's this great emphasis on wealth preservation, they may not shoot the lights out when it comes to um, certain times in the market. Um, And, you know, you may get performance that doesn't um, look great when the market's rocketing away. Um, I think you have to be um, aware that it's the whole concept of get rich slow uh, and not really rocking the boat. Yeah. Okay. Um, And Jason, I mean, that brings us on to some of more of the sort of downsides potentially of these trusts um, because more has mentioned that some of them haven't exactly shot the lights out in terms of performance but there's also sort of different risks from having a family being such a big shareholder in the trust aren't they? Sure I mean look I think on one level uh, perhaps superficially uh, understandably people might think if I'm invest- investing alongside some of these iconic names of wealthy families there's a sort of halo effect and uh, uh, and that you're really riding on their coattails but it's also worth bearing in mind that very wealthy families um, have a different requirement often than most of us do and that is to hang on to the wealth that you've already made in previous generations. So as Mara touched upon, these tend to be very focused on capital preservation rather than necessarily trying to shoot the lights out. Uh, that may suit some types of investors, but most of us uh, who are investing are doing so not because we're trying to take a, a multi-generational view of passing on wealth and building our own dynasties, unfortunately. It's probably actually a, a nearer-term need is actually to get us through our retirements. And therefore, that does mean that for, for many of us, actually, we need, certainly in our earlier years, our savings and, and investments to work harder for us. We need a return that involves probably more risk than many of these are actually taking. And of course, at the other end, when we're in retirement, we probably need investment vehicles that are going to generate a higher level of dividend than some of these types of vehicles um, uh, may be generating. Because whilst it is true, and as Moira said, some families will value the dividend, they'll use that to to fund their lifestyles off. Equally, some of these families will have lots of ongoing business interests and actually are using their investment company vehicles largely simply to pass on across to future generations a pot of assets and therefore it's not always the case that the dividend will be a priority. I think there are obviously governance issues as well. As with any investment vehicle where there is a large single cornerstone shareholder, that can be a good thing in terms of having um, a, a source of stability. But equally, one has to bear in mind that could it be that they're a little bit more tolerant of uh, the incumbent investment manager approach because um, these relationships have lasted uh, across different generations. Their voice is obviously going to be prominent as shareholders and obviously they are typically represented around the board table. That may mean there are occasions when their need for a dividend or not, or not needing a dividend will uh, clearly have the uh, ear of the board in the way that any one of us as an individual shareholder won't. And of course, uh, whilst um, it's great that you have the likes of Lord Rothschild on the board of RIT, an incredibly experienced investor, it's not given that in future generations, someone who is essentially uh, becomes a director of a company in virtue of their birth will necessarily be that interested or engaged or have the necessarily expertise or skill set to be a to be a highly involved director of a company so these things always need to be weighed up in the round uh, i think you know having a big shareholder there are lots of positives behind it equally if 
a family or, or any single shareholder effectively controls the trust, that may not be such a good thing. Okay. Thank you very much, both of you. You can read the full feature, Family Fortunes, How to Invest Alongside the Wealthy, now at ft.com forward slash money. Generating a rise in income is a very important goal for many investors, particularly for those in retirement or coming up to retirement. But investing for income has never been more challenging, especially since investors are feeling more wary of equity income funds since the collapse of Neil Woodford's fund. But some believe investment trusts could provide hope for income investors. So Jason, what do you think are the main challenges facing income investors? Well, the search for income is like the hunt for the Holy Grail, and it has been really for 10 years. We're in a, this age of ultra-low interest rates, really ab- abysmally low bond yields. That's sent investors scouring into other asset classes, including equities, taking on more risk to try and find yield. Um, and you know, one of the advantages of the investment trust and investment company structure is particularly when you're searching for a yield from sort of alternative or a liquid asset classes in particular. So um, trusts really come into their own in areas like property, getting access to operational infrastructure, renewable energy infrastructure. So some of these asset classes that are not suited to open-ended funds really uh, uh, can be found in the, in the investment trust an investment company space. And that, I think, is where these have really um, found a niche. The problem is, is because we're all after uh, these elusive yields. It means in many cases, you have to be very careful about the price you're paying for these um, vehicles, because often uh, vehicles with attractive levels of, of income, particularly where it's very dependable, are trading at quite big premiums to NEV, especially in areas like infrastructure, um, where, um, for example, most trusts are, are, are on double-digit premiums, which is obviously um, is quite a bitter pill to, to swallow, um, and, and therefore it's better to get in if you can through a tap issue or, or a fundraising rather than buying on the secondary market. Okay. Um, and you mentioned that some asset classes which you think are better uh, suited to investment trusts, property and infrastructure. You know, why is this? What's, what is it about... Um, investment trusts that make them particularly good for these assets and and by extension good for potentially for income? Sure. It's because the underlying asset classes are illiquid. Take property, for example, is, as we saw in the immediate aftermath of the, of the EU referendum, a lot of open-ended property funds ended up having to temporarily suspend dealing and to stop investors leaving. And that's because clearly if lots of investors panic and decide they want to take their money out, you can't quickly sell a part of a office block or um, or or a uh, industrial warehouse, so it takes time to have an orderly sale of those assets, and that means open-ended funds end up ho- having to hold lots of cash or liquid assets as a kind of buffer to deal with potential redemptions, and that waters down obviously exposure to the underlying asset class that you're trying to benefit from that generates income. Whereas at least an, an investment company or, or a real estate investment trust that owns physical property assets, it can generate income from the rents that it's earning. Uh, if investors panic and want to take their money out, sure, the share price might well uh, fall to a, a wide discount while that's happening, but at least the portfolio manager isn't trying to have a fire sale of the underlying assets to write checks back to investors. So 
They really are a much more suitable vehicle for accessing property. And likewise, operational infrastructure. These are projects, for example, to run toll roads or uh, manage uh, prisons or hospitals. Uh, These are very sought after for income seekers because these types of projects are usually on very long contracts, typically running 25, 30 years. uh, And they will have income streams that are often adjusted each year to account for changes in inflation. So those are really, really sought after. But of course, um, that obviously means as well that the shares in those vehicles do tend to trade at quite big premiums to NAV. So just be a little bit careful about that when you're when you're looking at what are attractive yields and are quite secure underlying investments. You might end up paying quite a hefty price to to access those investment vehicles. Okay. Um, and Moira, Jason's kind of been touching on the issue that investors need to you know do their homework, look for. Um, for various issues when they're deciding which trust to pick. Um, And I know we've spoken about for this article we wrote this week, a list that the Association of Investment Companies puts together of investment trusts, which it describes as dividend heroes. So, you know, is this list helpful? You know, what does it do and and what do investors need to know? Um, I I think it is helpful. And it's a fantastic bit of uh, PR for the investment trust industry. Um, The dividend heroes, um, it's a a great thing to highlight. There are 21 investment trusts on on the list. And they're there because they have a long record of increasing annual dividends. Um, The 21 on the list have done it for 20 years or more Mm -hmm. um, that they've managed to increase their dividend. Um, I can mention a few. Um, there's four of them that have done it for more than 50 years. That's, in a quite, row. that's a long time. Yes. Mm. So, so City of London, Bankers, Alliance Trust and Caledonia Investments, which we mentioned earlier as being one of the um, family um, wealth vehicles. Um, they've all done it for more than 50 years. And then looking further down, there's, there's, there's Brunner, which we mentioned in the earlier f- uh, feature as well. Yeah. Um, that's done it for 47 years. And, you know, that long dividend record um, can be a comfort to investors. Um, the trusts on the list are, are very, um, they, it's very closely guarded by the managers and the boards and they're unlikely to want to break that record. Sure. Okay. So does that mean that um, if you're an inv- income investor, you can rely upon this list um, as a way of, of choosing investments or are there any other sorts of issues you need to look at when you're doing research? Well, it do, it does come with caveats just because um, a trust has raised its dividend um, every year doesn't necessarily mean it's done it in line with inflation, nor does it mean that the trust has a a, a high yield. Um, so you do need to scrutinise it carefully um, and make sure that um, that you're not missing opportunities outside of the list by just focusing on this. Um, so, um, I mean, there are some great trusts um, out there, um, but one of the trusts, um, uh, well, some of the trusts do have these relatively low yields. For example, Scottish Mortgage makes it onto the list because it's consistently raised its payout for 36 years, but the trust actually doesn't have an income focus and, and it does yield uh, have a very low yield, really, um, of just point. 62%, which, you know, you wouldn't think that's a, oh, well, great income. Um, but, um, and, and of course, that's, there's only seven of those um, dividend heroes do yield more than 4%. Um, 
apparently um, um, just three have delivered um, inflation-beating dividend increases every year over the past 20 years. Uh, and those include, interestingly, bankers, Caledonia again, and uh, JP Morgan Cloverhouse. Um, so I think, you know, if you're relying on income to um, finance your lifestyle and it doesn't increase every year to keep in uh, pace with inflation, you do find that your spending power of your money is going to be reduced over time. Uh, and that's not what a lot of investors would want. Okay, that's great. Thank you very much, Moira. Um, and do you have any examples then, Moira? Because you was mentioned, obviously, not all the trusts beat inflation. Do you have any good examples of trusts that don't feature on the AIC's Dividend Heroes list, but actually you think are, are good trusts for income seekers? Um, well, one is Finsbury Growth and Income. Um, it doesn't claim to be a dividend hero, but it has increased its yield each year since 2011. And shareholders in that trust are unlikely to be complaining that it doesn't have a, a dividend hero tag given the spectacular growth you've seen. And it does have a healthy yield on it. So I think you've got to be aware that there may be opportunities elsewhere that aren't included in this list. OK, thank you. Um, and Jason, what do you look for when you're choosing an income trust for clients? And do you have any particular favourites? Well, I, look, I think the right thing is if the client generally needs the income, I wouldn't be restricting my list to, to, to company, investment companies that have raised their dividend over a long period of time because a lot of these actually just don't generate much yield. I'd also be a little bit careful of, of what the names suggest because whilst Finsley Growth, growth and Income has done fantastically well, it is actually invested in quality growth companies and they look very expensive at the moment and there's a little bit of a shake-up in that part of the market. So what, what we'd look for is actually you look for a decent level of headline yield, uh, but you'd look for a, a, a portfolio where uh, the level of dividend dis distributions are sus both sustainable, i.e. well covered by underlying earnings, and have the uh, capacity to grow over time. So it's getting that balance right between a level of yield that's actually doing the job today but actually where um, uh, you believe there's prospects for that uh, level of yield to grow and actually value of the capital group to grow because you need that to happen over time or the real value of those distributions uh, that you're going to be living off are actually going to shrink as, uh, as inflation kicks in. So we would look for well-covered dividends, but actually uh, rather than focusing on the headline yield alone, I think you need to look for actually what are the prospects for actually growing that le level of dividend over a reasonable period of time. I think in the market at the moment, there's some quite interesting anomalies, uh, particularly, you know, the UK market is obviously the, um, the premier market globally, uh, the premier uh, developed market for dividends. It's a really important feature of the UK stock market. But obviously, there's a, you know, a lot of anxiety hanging over the UK at the moment. We've got a general election, obviously, in a few weeks' time, the B word Brexit. So that has led actually to quite a discount on UK shares generally. And actually, that essentially has boosted the yields on offer on many UK shares. So if you're feeling brave and uh, you think all these anxieties will lift in a few weeks' time, there could be some good opportunities there. One way of playing that might be, for example, through through Lowland Investment Trust, which targets uh, dividend-generating companies. It's a... Um, it got a high yield, 4.6%, and its shares are trading on an 8% discount to NAV. Obviously, if the clouds of worry lift in the coming weeks that we're not about to uh, institute Marxism in the UK and actually we will have an amicable exit from the EU, big ifs, 
if that happens, actually, you could see quite a rally in the types of shares that Lowland owns and maybe even a closing of Lowland's own discount. But uh, certainly the starting yield is, is appealing at, at 4.6%. Okay, interesting option. Um, but as you say, one for the brave, potentially. There are, there are other, I mean, there are other vehicles as well. I mean, I think, you know, um, most investors will want a part of their portfolio invested in emerging markets, so, you know, a small proportion. A really attractive way of gaining that using an investment company, I think, is is the Utilico Emerging Markets. Utilico is an investment company. It invests across the emerging markets, but through the shares of utility and infrastructure companies. So actually, these are, tend to be more robust investments. And of course, across the developing world, there's, there's, there, there's a lot of infrastructure investment happening, build out um, uh, those economies, and you know that that's available at a, at about a ten and a half percent discount to NAV at the moment. Yes, it doesn't offer the types of high levels of yield you might see from a UK investment vehicle, but uh, at, um, th- at just over three percent yield, that is quite a good way of getting your emerging market exposure with a bit of dividend income uh, coming in, um, and in a way that I would argue is probably a lot more defensive than most emerging market funds. Great, thank you very much. And you can read the article, Are Dividend Hero Trust Still the Investor's Champion? by Lucy Warwick-Ching, now on ft.com forward slash money. Experts say that we are likely to live much longer than we expect, especially if we focus on our health. This is definitely good news. But the catch is that with fewer final salary pensions around, we need to think more about how to make sure our investments last throughout our life. An investment trust could be well suited to this, according to Merrin Somerset-Webb, who has written about this issue in FT Money this week and joins me over the phone now. Hi, Merrin. Hi. Great. So um, in your piece, you mentioned that many investment trusts have been around for a very long time. Why is that? Well, I mean, this is a really interesting thing. I mean, I've actually just been reading a book I would recommend to everybody, The Rise and Fall of the City of Money, A Financial History of Edinburgh. It's really interesting because the investment trust industry started up here. Oh. It originally attempted to uh, invest some of the fortunes that people had made in, in, in Scotland 150 years ago. And some of the trusts that were set up then are still with us. So things like the FNC Investment Trust, Dunedin Income and Growth, Scottish American, et cetera, et cetera. These trusts are 140 150 years old, and they've lasted this whole time in pretty good health, paying out dividends, making capital gains. And they've done this, I think, just because they have, unlike other investment funds, they have permanent capital. So the capital is raised, the shares are sold, and then, you know, you can buy and sell shares as much as you like, but the capital cannot be withdrawn. And that means that they are genuinely long-term investment vehicles. And mostly they mess up sometimes. Of course, they do have emerges close and some of them wound up. But these big, big uh, multi-asset trusts or equity income trusts or whatever they've morphed into over the years just keep going. We have other things that that provide for the long term. And one of the main things there is the fact that they have a board of directors. Mm-hmm. There's a really important difference between them and other types of funds because the board of directors of each trust is there specifically to represent the shareholders, not the managers of the money, but the shareholders. And that's a very important factor behind their longevity, I think. That's interesting. Um, and on that point on boards, do you think that's an advantage? Because, I mean, we've seen some cases that some boards of investment trusts, I'm thinking about Neil Woodford in particular, and the Patient Capital Trust, um, not necessarily uh, done as well as they might have done, shall we say. 
Mm, I think it's absolutely an advantage in general. I mean, the Woodford Patient Capital uh, Trust is something of an outlier. You, know, you could argue about whether those investors were independent, um, independent of the investments in the trust, and also independent of the investment manager. And one of the things that it's really important for directors to remember, and I think in the main they do remember, is that they are employing the fund manager, not the other way around. So if you're a director of an investment trust and you know it's got written on it, Bailey Gifford or Standard Life or Aberdeen or Woodford, whatever it is, just because it's the name of the fund manager on it does not mean it belongs to the fund manager. It belongs to the shareholders and the directors employ the fund manager. And as long as that dynamic is not forgotten, uh, things don't go wrong so often. And patient capital trust is, a, as I say, a bit of an outlier in the way that these things should be organised. And I dare say we'll hear more about that over the next few months. I'm sure we will. Um, all right. So, you know, you, you talked about the, the permanent capital structure that investment trusts have and the boards. Um, and so in your piece, you actually talk about why this, you think, makes them a better option for income than, say, other options like an annuity. Like, why is that? Well, I, I wouldn't go better than annuities. These are different products. Um, but, you know, annuities are very unpopular at the moment because rates are, rates are very low and people don't like to give up control of their capital. You know, you've gone through all this business over 40 years of saving. You've ended up with 200 grand or whatever it is. And someone is now asking you to hand that over in return for guaranteed income for life. And that guaranteed income looks very small. And also, if you're going to live a very long time, you're going to live that time particularly healthily, you want to keep your options open. You know, maybe you've retired at 60. You're going to live in good health till you're 85 or 90. So maybe you want to, you don't just want to hand over all your capital. You might need that capital more than you need income. Who knows what's going to happen later? So let's say that you choose to keep that capital, but you still want to create an income. And you still like the idea of an annuity where your capital is effectively slowly turned into income over time. Now, one of the great benefits of investment trusts is that they are not obliged to pay out all of the income that they get in from dividends every year. So they can hold some of it back to smooth the returns every year. So they can say to you, we're going to give you a certain percentage every year and keep doing that every year with more confidence than possibly uh, an open-ended fund. And then they can do something else rather brilliant, which before Pensions Freedom I used to thoroughly disapprove of, which is that they can pay dividends out of capital. So they are allowed to turn your capital into income which is exactly what an annuity does, right? Mm. But, the, but an investment trust can do that while leaving you in control of the remaining capital. Now, there isn't an investment trust out there that is marketing itself saying, look, you know, do you know what? we're a bit like an annuity, a lot riskier, obviously, yeah. but a bit like an annuity. There isn't one doing that at the moment. I think it's an enormous opportunity for the industry to look at the pensions freedom market and say, do you know what? We're one of the few vehicles out there that has a structure already set up that can leave people with control of their capital, but also help them turn that capital into income over a 25 or 30 year period. So I think it's an absolutely fantastic structure for the way that our pension system is going in and hopefully it will be used more for that in the future. Interesting. And yeah, we'll have to watch the space, see if any other industry follows up on, on your idea, Marin. Yeah, I mean, some trusts do pay a little bit of uh, pay a little bit of capital out of income. There are a few doing it, but but none with a particular mind to being a, for example, a large multi-asset international trust uh, doing it specifically uh, for people in their pension years. Thanks very much there to Merrin Somerset Webb, and you can read her column now at ft.com forward slash money. And to remind listeners, any mention of investment trusts on this podcast was in the context of a general discussion and not a recommendation. So if you want investment advice, you should speak to an independent financial advisor. That's it for The Money Show this week. 
If you want to get in touch with me, Emma Ajaman, or the rest of the team to suggest a topic you'd like to hear us talk about on this podcast, email us at money at ft.com or check out our LinkedIn page, search for Financial Times, Your Money, or you can follow us on Twitter at FT Money. We'll be back next time at the usual time. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.